0: Worship and music must be a priority for every one of us. Why? Because God commands it. He's prescribed music and worship as one of the ways we express our worship to Him.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Holy Spirit's Influence. We've been exploring the influence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and thus far in particular the love for Christ-centered music. But just any music? Played in any arrangement, on any instrument? Today Tom explains the scriptures teaching on musical instruments, vocalists, choirs, music direction and leadership, and congregational singing. Tom will explore scriptural foundations from both the Old and New Testaments to help guide you through an understanding of the purpose and practice of each. But before we begin, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. Tom?
0: When it comes to the issue of music, I think most of us are driven either by personal tastes or by our own decisions on issues of conscience. And it's easy to make those prescriptive. In the end, what we have to remind ourselves is that the Scripture alone is prescriptive. It's okay for us to have personal preferences. It's okay for us to make decisions in terms of our own conscience and what we will and will not permit. But we can't allow that to frame up what is right and wrong for a church to do, or in the end, even for what we do. We ultimately have to come back to the Scripture Itself and look at the scripture alone, it is the foundation for our life
1: and our conduct. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now to discover more from God's Word here on the Word Unleashed.
0: Perhaps you are aware, if you have read anything about popular Christianity today's evangelicalism, that there is an increasing push in the postmodern church to incorporate secular music into the church's corporate worship. Over the last few years, I have read articles, as perhaps you have, of churches using everything from groups like Coldplay to Van Halen, Creed, YouTube, Boston, Taylor Swift, and even Garth Brooks in the corporate worship of the church. A couple of years ago, I, with some curiosity, heard about a pastor in our area who did an entire series of entitled, I-God, taking off on the word iPod. And each week, this pastor would play a secular song, truly secular, no references to God whatsoever, And at the beginning of his message. And then his sermon was essentially exegeting that song, looking for God, looking for some spiritual theme in that secular song. Now, why don't we include secular songs in our worship? Or more to the point, why do we include music at all? Well, the second commandment teaches us that God alone has prescribed and has the right to prescribe how we worship Him. The second commandment says that you're not to make of God any graven image. That wasn't that you were to have idols. The first commandment speaks against idols, or that is false gods, The second commandment speaks about the form of worship, how you worship even the true God. You're not to make an image of the true God. So we can only worship God as He prescribes. We decide what elements to include in the corporate worship based on what the Scripture teaches. Now, there has always been agreement among the people of God on this basic principle because it grows out of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. And of course, it was around before the Reformation. And that is that the Scripture alone is the inspired, the sole inspired authority of what we believe and how we practice the Christian faith. Now, although there was agreement in principle on sola scriptura, there was at the same time significant disagreement on how that actually fleshed out in what elements to include in the corporate worship. The reformers took two different paths, and those two paths are still with us today. Let me briefly explain them to you. Some followed what was called the normative principle, and others the regulative principle. Again, let me briefly explain those two so you understand why churches are where they are today. First of all, the Lutherans and the Anglicans joined with the Roman Catholics in embracing what's Theologians call the normative principle. The normative principle teaches this whatever the Scripture does not forbid directly is acceptable in worship. In other words, the the normative principle asks this question Does the Scripture forbid this practice? If not, then those who follow this principle would say it's permitted, it's allowed the Reformed embraced the opposite principle, the opposite position, called the regulative principle. The regulative principle argues that only that which the Scripture directly prescribes is acceptable in the worship of God. Both the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the foundation for what Presbyterians believe, and the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which was originally, although they've strayed far from it, what Baptists believe, both of them say this, quote, "...the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by His own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We don't get to decide how we worship God. The regulative principle asks, does Scripture command or directly sanction this practice? If not, then it's not permitted. And you can see how the two different paths have gone and why certain things are allowed in some churches and not in others. Because of the inherent danger in violating the second command, that is, God prescribes how we worship and we must do it in that way, because of the inherent danger of that, we as a church embrace the second of those principles, the regulative principle. That means the elements of our corporate worship are only those things that God commands. There are seven elements of worship the Scripture commands of us, and that's what happens after I open the service in prayer. Those seven elements are all that there will be in our worship because those are the things God has prescribed. First of all, there is to be prayer. Number one, there is to be prayer to God. Prayers are prescribed as an act of worship. Secondly, there is to be giving. The New Testament prescribes giving as something that happens when the church gathers corporately. Third, there is to be the reading of Scripture. Fourth, there is to be the teaching of Scripture. Fifth, there is to occasionally be baptism one of the ordinances prescribed by Christ. Sixth, there is to be the Lord's table. And then number seven, there is to be worship in music. Those seven elements are the elements that are directly prescribed, directly commanded by God for the church to do when it gathers together. To add anything to that is to risk violating the second commandment and worshiping God in a way that he has not prescribed. When we do those seven things and when we do them with the right heart, it honors God because it follows his own specific commands for our worship. Understand this, God's people sing in worship because he himself has prescribed and commanded it to be part of the worship we return to him. That's what Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand in Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul addresses this issue of music in the church. Now, turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and just to remind you of the context, in verse 18, Paul has just told us that if we're going to walk in biblical wisdom, we must be filled by the Spirit. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with or by the Spirit. As we have seen, that means that we must allow the Spirit of God to fill us with a deep understanding of the Word of God so that the Word directs and controls our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. The Spirit is the agent that fills us, and He fills us, according to the parallel passage in Colossians 3, with the Scripture. We're to be under the influence of the Spirit Now, to be under the influence of the Spirit is to have certain effects of that influence. Just as in the first half of the verse, to be under the influence of alcohol produces certain effects, to be under the influence of the Spirit produces different effects. There are three primary effects or consequences or results of being under the influence of the Spirit, and you see them in verses 19 to 21. Number one is a love for God-centered music in verse 19. Secondly, a pattern of thankfulness in verse 20. And thirdly, a heart of submission in verse 21. Those things will be present in the life of a person who is filled by the Spirit with the Scripture, where there is a rich indwelling of the Word of God in a believer's life. Now, we're looking at the first primary result or consequence of being filled by the Spirit with the Word. It is a love for God-centered music. Look at verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, notice that the word speaking is a participle, as is singing and making melody later in the verse. Those participles all modify the main verb, which is in the previous verse, be filled by the Spirit. In other words, these are the overflow of a life that is filled by the Spirit. When you're filled by the Spirit with the Word, these things will be a reality. Now, verse 19 is a kind of textbook on the role of music in the life of a a believer. The Spirit has packed into this brief verse several insights into the role of music in our lives. The first insight, and we've already seen this one, is the purpose of music in the Christian's life. First of all, music serves a horizontal purpose. Look around you. Music is for one another. Notice how the verse begins, speaking to one another in our music. Now why do we speak to one another in our music? Well, the parallel passage, Colossians 3, tells us that we do it to teach one another and to admonish one another. The lyrics of the songs we sing teach us the truth about God and His Word, That's why it's so important we choose the right songs. And they admonish us, they urge us, they persuade us to do what we know is true. So music serves a horizontal purpose. But it also serves a vertical purpose. Notice the second half of verse 19. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Music is others directed to build them up in their faith, and music is God directed vertically for worship. That's the purpose of music. Now, there's a second insight that we've already seen as well in this verse about music, and that is the variety of music in the Christian's life. In verse 19 here, Paul identifies three types or kinds of lyrics that are acceptable in the worship of God. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms refers primarily to the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms. And to the later songs that arise out of its poetry or that use the Psalms as a pattern. That's the Psalms. Hymns are those spiritual songs that set forth the truth about God and are actually usually addressed to God. This morning we sang Ferris, Lord Jesus, and it was addressed directly to Christ. That is a hymn, it's praise of God addressed to God. Spiritual songs refers to music that is neither psalms nor hymns, but has a biblically solid spiritual message. These are often songs about our own experience. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And many songs we sing are a mix of these elements. But those are the three kinds of types of lyrics, the variety of music that's to be in our lives. Now today we come to a third insight about music that's found in this verse. And that is the instruments for music in the Christian's life. The instruments for music in the Christian's life. First and most obviously, the human voice. The human voice. Notice verse 19 begins speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing. Obviously to speak is to use the human voice. And the Greek word that's translated singing here is the normal word for using the human voice in music. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because it's not disputed. No one argues that we as individuals uh, shouldn't sing. So you understand this, and this is what the Scripture teaches. The human voice is an acceptable instrument in the worship of God. But the Scripture also teaches another category of instruments that are acceptable in the worship of God, and it's this, all musical instruments. Not only the human voice, but all musical instruments instruments. Now, I'm going to come back to Ephesians 5, because I think we'll see it here as well. But first, I want to go back and look at the Old Testament pattern for including musical instruments in the corporate worship of God. If you go back, obviously, shortly after Adam, in the early generations after Adam, one of his descendants named Jubal invented instruments. And undoubtedly, when the godly line of Seth began there in Genesis 4, God's people began to use those instruments to worship him. But the first recorded example of musical instruments used in the worship of God is in Exodus chapter 15. You don't need to turn there. But in Exodus 15, you remember, God has just amazed the people of Israel at the Red Sea. You remember, he divided it for them. They walked through. You know, Two million people walked through on dry land. And they get to the other side, and they watch those walls of water still standing up. And here comes the Egyptian army through that break in the water, and God unleashes its fury and destroys the entire Egyptian army. And they compose a song. It's called the Song of Moses there in Exodus 15. And they sing it. And Exodus 15 verse 20 tells us that Miriam, Moses' sister, and others... Sang and they sang accompanied by the playing of what's called the timbrel. That's something like our tambourine, but without the metal jingles. It essentially was a handheld drum, a small little drum on which they played, and they sang this song of Moses. You can see other instances throughout the Old Testament, but while instruments of various kinds were used in worship of God before the monarchy, David is the one who made them a part of the worship of the tabernacle and later the temple. In fact, according to 1 Chronicles 23 and 2 Chronicles 7, David actually invented a number of musical instruments. Not only was he an amazing poet, we have that recorded for us in the Psalms, not only was he an incredible musician, as Samuel tells us, he also was an inventor of musical instruments. Now in David's time, They numbered the people and there were, of the tribe of Levi, those specially set apart to serve God, there were some 38,000 men who were mature men. And those 38,000 were to serve God in the temple. Of those 38,000, David appointed 4,000 to be responsible for the music at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Most of those 4,000 Levites who were chosen to be involved in music were to be instrumentalists. David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise shouts of joy. 1 Chronicles 23, 5, 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. Now, when did they play? When did this amazing group of musicians play? And by the way, probably all 4,000 only played on really high festival occasions, major events. On the other days, they would serve by rotation, just as the rest of the priests did. But 1 Chronicles 23, verses 30 and 31, tell us when these instruments were played. They are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord, and likewise at evening, on the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the fixed festivals, in the numbers set by the ordinance concerning them, continually before the Lord. What you need to understand is that these musicians were to lead worship and music at the tabernacle and later at the temple every morning and every evening of every day including every sabbath and every special feast day amazing would have been a, a dramatic thing to have heard at the temple now if you read first and second chronicles you'll notice that there were instruments included in this from all the categories of the instruments we have when we classify instruments today we say they're brass there's, there's wind instruments, there's strings, and there's percussion. Well, all of those were present in the prescription God gave. Brass and wind, for example, there were trumpets, ram's horns, flutes, and pipes. Strings, there were lyres, harps, tin strings, and the lute. Percussion, there were cymbals and timbrels, those small drums I mentioned earlier. Now, what's important to note here is that there were a mixture of instruments. Some of these instruments were specifically invented by David for the worship of God. Others of them were instruments that were simply the the instruments of ancient Israel. So that means that God, by prescribing that those be used, sanctioned all instruments from all the categories of instruments for worship. Now that's a very important thing for us to get into our heads Let me just say, I understand that there are certain instruments each of us like more than we like others. There are others we don't like, and that's okay. We can all have our own opinions. But biblically understand this, there are no instruments that are off limits in the worship of God. Trumpets and timpanis, violins and violas, drums, guitars, and organs are all acceptable in the worship of God. So if there's one of those or more that you have trouble with, understand that's your personal preference. That is not a biblical warrant. So there's this amazing variety of instruments. Now when you look at the Old Testament pattern, in addition to the orchestra, you see choirs and vocalists who were set apart from the congregation, prescribed by God to be part of Israel's worship. Of those 4,000 Levite musicians I mentioned earlier, 288 of them were to be a huge choir. Look at 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 25. 1 Chronicles 25, and notice verse 5. You have the children of Heman, the king's seer. There were 14 sons and three daughters. They were in some kind of a supervisory role. Verse 6, all of these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the direction of the king. Their number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. That's also a good target. 4,000 instrumentalists and 288 choir members. Now, notice in verse 5 that the choir that sang for the Lord was composed of both men and women. Also, if you fast forward to Ezra, Ezra chapter 2, there we're told there were 200 male and female singers. They were accomplished musicians. In fact, the Jewish Talmud says that the choir members involved in this had a five-year training period before they were actually allowed to sing. It's interesting as well, when you look at this, that God appointed music directors to lead the musical element of the corporate worship of ancient Israel. At the return of the ark, flip back just a few pages to First Chronicles 15, at the return of the ark, you see this beginning when they're getting ready for the, the real tabernacle worship and eventually the temple. There's a music director. First Chronicles 15 verse 22 tells us about his qualifications Chenaniah, the chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. There's his qualification for this job. And notice in verse 27, you see his job description. Now, and this is again describing the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem. Now, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Shennaniah, the leader of the singing, with the singers. David also wore an ephod of linen. So you have this musical director. Now if you fast forward, that David now lived about a thousand years before Christ. If you fast forward 600 years to the very end of Old Testament history, you see exactly the same thing going on. 600 years later.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 5 of his current series, The Holy Spirit's Influence. Tom will have Part 6 for you on our next program. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that